Okay. Um, <laughs> all right, so here's going to be a pop quiz for myself, first and foremost, um, because I forgot to write out the summary of each chapter before I did it. So let's see if I can remember without cheating. So um, chapter one, how the Jews got it wrong. Uh, sorry, how the Gentiles got it wrong. Chapter two, how the Jews got it wrong. Uh, chapter three, how Jesus makes it right. Chapter four, Abraham is a prototype. Chapter five, the cross. Chapter six, death and resurrection through baptism. Chapter seven, how it um, affects sin and sin, small s and big s, affect us on a personal level. Chapter eight, um, Holy Spirit. I'm a beast. Okay, so we will do, <laughs> uh, we're going to get through chapters nine and 10 today um, because they're, they're, um, these are actually, the, this is the crux actually of his theological argument. This is the deepest, as I, I would say, it gets theologically um, in terms of, of doctrine um, in the letter. But I think that we should be able to get through it um, in, in the time allotted. So, um, remember that when this is being written, if you think my sermons are long or any of your pre-sermons are long, just think about how Romans 1 through 16 is one letter. <laughs> And it was read all at once in church um, in a row. That was, that was the sermon. Um, so it's a lot, um, it's a lot of, of content that we're, that we're dealing with. Um, so, um, so far, just before we, we're going to read the letter, in, the chapters 9 and 10 in a row, and then we'll come back like we usually do piece by piece. So St. Paul so far has talked about covenant right? He's talked about God's faithfulness. He's talked about the story of salvation um, and how this was written from the beginning of time and how to enter into it, okay? But now he's going to go back to what he was, um, one second, because I forgot to make Abuna the host. Um, sorry, Abuna. Uh, there we go. Sorry. So now he's going to go back to what he brought to the beginning. Remember that in, in Romans, he's writing to um, a, a church that's predominantly Gentile, okay? So St. Paul now makes a special return in the next three chapters. I actually wanted to get Romans 11 in with these two chapters, but I knew we weren't going to finish on time if we did, because um, this really reads as one piece in a row, and it flows really, really well. But St. Paul wants to come back and make a particular point um, to the Gentiles um, that the Jews are still a special people, okay? So he wants to make a really um, particular point um, about how they're not, they're, not re they're not rejects. And I actually think it's an important message because as I read this, um, I think that we, even in modern times actually, um, sometimes uh, lose sight of that, that, that the Jews are still a special people to God. Um, and he... Um, he really is going to drive that home even more in 11 than 9 and 10, but he's going to really drive it home. Um, and so he's going to have a lament for this particular people, the Jews who have not believed, right? He's really upset that they haven't accepted the gospel. And don't forget that for St. Paul, this was really difficult on himself when he came to know Christ, right? Like it was, he gets it. He knows why the Jews are struggling. Um, 
And so he wants to get a little bit more in this section with the nitty gritty um, of, of the Jewish predicament and about what it means particularly about God um, and his faithfulness. Um, and there's an arrogance among the Gentiles. Paul wants to correct them um, because the Gentiles are looking at this whole situation as proof that the Jews are rejects and that God doesn't like them. Um, and St. Paul wants to correct that attitude. So in these, these three chapters, 9, 10, 11, he's going to try and address all of this, prevent pride and gender unity and respect. So we'll read them in a row um, and then we'll go through it. Um, again, for those who have been asking, so I think in the Katena app, it's KJV 2000 or something like that. Um, I'm reading from RSV, Second Catholic Edition. Um, everyone, I know everyone's kind of doing their own thing. So I'm speaking the truth um, in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from the Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen by race. They are Israelites, and to them belongs the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belongs the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, be blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. But through Isaac shall your descendants be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned as descendants. For this is what the promise said. About this time I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not upon man's will or exertion, but upon God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, was, so then he has mercy upon whomever he wills, and he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will, that, what it, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for beauty and another for menial use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even, as, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. 
And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence upon the earth with rigor and dispatch. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us children, we would have fared like Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is righteousness through faith. But that Israel, who pursued the righteousness which is based on law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it through faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, that everyone who has faith may be justified. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by it. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be safe. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone forth out, gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Um, and so you can see, glory, by the grace of God the Father be to all. You can see how chapter 11, like when we get to it, follows from it naturally. It's meant, it's, it's, it's meant to be read in a row, but we'll stop the, the readings there. Um, so before we get into it, so first of all, um, uh, Mina, I think we'll run, the, if you don't mind, regularly um, sending the link out to where the video is, is working and I'll have it fixed by next week. I'm really sorry for those who didn't. Um, before I actually get into it, you know, it's funny because there's a lot of controversy in our church about the use of the expositions during Holy Week um, because of how they talk about Jews. Um, Whereas I, I think St. Paul is just as aggressive and I, I don't, I'm not as embarrassed by it, I think, as I once was, because you've got to remember that um, you're, the context of people talking to the Jews are people who are former Jews in a lot of cases, or as you'll see from these chapters, a brother speaking to his brother, 
right? Like I, I can, I can tell off my brother, but you can't, right? Like if you tell off my brother, I'll, I'll, I'll not be really nice to you. But if, if, if I tell off my brother, I'm perfectly fine with it. <laughs> so it's, there's, there's a bit of that that's, that's going on. So we'll come back to the beginning of chapter nine um, to go through this. So let's test this share to stream. Okay. This section here. Okay, so apparently none of the video is working. Um, let me stop streaming and start. Is it working now? I'm so sorry, guys. Please don't hate me. If it's not working, I'm going to just move on because I, I don't want to make everyone go crazy. I don't know. Okay. Um, because I keep on trying to start it here and it's not working. Okay, so the theological purpose of this section is at least twofold, okay? Partially, um, St. Paul wants to answer, as we'll see in the beginning of chapter nine, the question of, can God be trusted if he made a promise to Israel about them being his people? Can you trust him? That's like, I, I actually would never even have thought of that question, to be quite honest with you. That didn't even cross my mind. So he wants to answer that question. He's saying, if God made a promise saying, you're the chosen people, and I'm going to give you a nation and a land and inheritance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then has God chosen, broken his promise? Can God be trusted? And then second is what is to be said of, of the Jews. So in these three chapters, um, I'm going to go read, I'm going to, try and incorporate a lot of the prophecies that he's going through, but not all of them, because these next three chapters, chapter 9, 10, 11, are the most that St. Paul quotes um, the Old Testament in all of his epistles. It's in these three chapters. So there's like at least like 30 different context references, at least in the next three chapters. Um, there's tons in the whole book of Romans. So I'm going to go through um, some of them as we go along, because you've got, the reason why I care to do that is you've got to realize the power and the strength of Paul's message, if you want to appreciate Romans, right, that he's not building an argument of just like, so I really think, I feel, no, St. Paul is a very, very, very able Jewish theologian, right, he really, you, you can see this son of Gamaliel come out in him um, in, in these chapters. So, um, the dilemma, okay? Has God been unfair, unfaithful? Does God's gospel, the righteousness of God that he's proclaimed in chapter one, ultimately reveal an unrighteous God, okay? So he's going to use diatribe, okay? Diatribe is like a, a self-directed Q&A, okay? Where he's going to ask questions and answer himself, and sometimes he'll be a bit rhetorical, um, he's actually using something you may have heard of in school or not called Midrash, which is specifically um, Jewish exegesis, how they do explanation of their own text. So he's using um, a technique very familiar to a Jew of his time and probably today. I don't know, if, I don't know enough about people today. And so um, he'll deal with the past, present, and future of God's salvation. So 
I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears within the Holy Spirit. He's being really dramatic here. In one sense, he's like, it's like when we start our conversation with a, like, not going to lie, right? But he's being way more dramatic than that. He's saying, I promise, I'm not lying. My conscience can testify myself that I am not happy about this situation, about my brother Juice. Okay? He, he's really, really affected. Um, I wish that I could be anathema, accursed. That's strong language, right? I wish that I could be anathema and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen by race. They are Israelites. And, to them, and so this list that he goes through, these are things Jews showed off about, right? This is what, what Jews took pride in. They have sonship, glory, covenant, giving of the law, worship, promises, right? They have the patriarchs. They, in fact, are the ones from whom Christ himself came, right? So he's saying they have a lot, okay? Um, and and the, the tone of this is really beautiful if you think about it, because St. Paul is saying, let me be accursed if that saves them. He's saying two things. One is that it's very reminiscent of Moses, right? When Moses stands before God after the Jews have committed abomination and God says, I will slay these people, but I will make my covenant with you, Moses. And Moses says, then kill me with them, right? That's what Moses, this is what St. Paul is saying. He goes, I, I, I almost would be willing to be anathema in the same way also that Christ became a curse for our salvation, right? He's saying, he's saying in that context, he's not saying I'd rather go to hell than, than this. He's just saying, if there was something I could do on their behalf that they be saved, I would do it, right? Including my own death, including the, having the curse laid upon me, I would do it if that brings them there. Which really, I mean, we'll do a lot of the, more of the meditation near the end. I'll do most of the explanation in the beginning, but ask yourself, how sad are you about those who don't have the gospel? Like, are you this worked up as St. Paul is that there are people who aren't Christian? So in this part that's coming, St. Paul is going to make the central claim of, this, of chapters 9 through 11, okay? God is not unfaithful, he's merciful, okay? So the failure of belief that we just read about, that's not the failure of God's word, okay? It's not that God, it's not that God made a promise that he couldn't keep. But he's going to say something so offensive to a Jew at the time, and I'm guessing probably to a Jew today where he says, not every Israelite is really belonging to Israel. Okay, and that's, that's a bold claim, okay? And we're gonna go through it in a, in a second. Um, and he, that's gonna make him go through the whole narrative of God's salvation among the Jews, and it's gonna show a pattern, okay? I'm, I'm giving this as an intro so you can pay attention as we go through it. There's a pattern that there's a larger plan that's going on. What, what the Jews are seeing is these individual moments in time that God is favoring them. St. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It wasn't a favoring of you. This was part of a much bigger plan in which God is acting freely, mercifully, and faithfully. Okay? And it's got to be read in the context of the whole Bible. Okay? And it has to be read in context of the whole letter because there are verses that we've read in these two chapters that have been monumentally abused um, in the whole faith versus works and one saved, all saved arguments. This, these two chapters are, are big on that. Um, 
So Paul tells the story of Israel from Abraham to the exile in order to make the point that God's word has not failed and that on the contrary, Israel was warned that what's happened was part of the plan and Israel was told about this in advance. Okay, that this, is, this shouldn't be new if you follow scripture. So we will continue at verse 6. Okay. But it is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham just because they're his descendants. I'm, I'm paraphrasing now freely, okay? But through Isaac, your sons will be named. This means that's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned as descendants, okay? This is a very cool um, concept that I think, especially the Orthodox can see um, in, their, in, in our tradition. Um, the Catholics have it, just it's not practiced as much to my knowledge lately, which is the, the being called, okay? So when I got ordained, the first thing that gets said is, we call you, not even giving me a name, we call you to the church of Christ, amen. Then it was, we call you Anthony Paul, presbyter in the, in the, the Orthodox Church of God in the Christ-loving Diocese of Los Angeles in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? The calling, this changing of the name, okay, is supposed to be the sign of God's election. A monk gets a new name. A priest gets a new name. A deacon gets a new name. A nun gets a new name, right? Anyone who is called to a particular vocation has the changing of the name. And it's, it's this, this, this communication of blessing and of election, um, and so St. Paul is saying that not everybody who is a descendant of Abraham got called. Abraham got called. He received a, a new name. Okay. But as we're going to see, not all of his descendants did. For, for this is what the promise said. About this time, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So what he's saying here is that election okay, which is what he, the word he's using, the choice of God is his selection. It was always selection, not works, that God was working his covenant. So what he's saying is, Jacob was called from the womb, right? Saying that the, younger is gonna, that the elder will serve the younger, but Jacob hadn't done anything yet. So it's not because Jacob did something that God said, I'm choosing Jacob. Jacob hadn't done anything yet, St. Paul said. He wasn't even born yet. God simply chose him. God had the freedom to choose him, and that's what he did. Esau didn't do anything wrong either. And so St. Paul's building up this argument that from the first calling of Abraham, no one had done anything yet. God chose Abraham before Abraham did anything. God chose Isaac. Isaac hadn't done anything. God chose Jacob. Jacob hadn't done anything. And in fact, St. Paul is saying he didn't choose Esau. 
And so here there was two options. There was two kids, right? But he didn't choose one of them. And actually that's what hate means in, in one of its truest contexts. Hate today has a negative connotation of, I can't stand you, I don't like you, I reject you, you're disgusting. There, there's all these emotional attachments to the word hate. It doesn't mean that, right? It can mean that in colloquial meaning, but it didn't originally have to mean that. It could simply mean the thing that I didn't choose. So if I choose between A and B, choosing A means I love A, and it means also I hate B. But it doesn't mean I hate in the colloquial sense because I might actually really like B, it's just that I didn't choose it, right? It's just that I ended up choosing A, right? So in, 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 in another way, right, in, in that I could say that in choosing to marry one person, I have hated the rest of the world, right? That, that's literally all it means, but not again in the emotional, in the emotional sense. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to get used to sharing these verses on Katena. It's going to take me some practice. I'm sorry. Okay, so verse 9. You should see it in there now. For this is what the promise said. About this time I will return. Oh, sorry, I already did that part. Je excuse. Okay, so Paul is beginning <laughs> a distinction between descendants of the flesh Okay, offspring, this is the boast of the Jews, we're the offsprings of Abraham, right? So he's distinguishing between the descendants of the flesh and descendants of the promise. This is brand new, okay? This is something the Jews are not used to, where, where, where he's saying, sorry, it's not your descendancy of the 12 tribes that's making you holy. It's actually that you are children of the promise specifically. That's what makes you God's chosen people. Okay, and so this is why he's saying not all Jews are true Jews. And that's really controversial to a Jew of his time. Okay, that's a really, really big deal. Um, because if being a son of Abraham, according to the flesh, is what mattered, then what St. Paul is arguing here is, then why isn't Ishmael? as much a child of the covenant as you are and he's not right why aren't the children of keturah that was actually the wife that abraham took after sarah died why aren't they heirs of the promise they're not only isaac was right and then only jacob was and not esau in fact esau who became the founder of the nation of edom that was the other name of, of edom of of, of uh, esau that nation at this point in history in paul's writing they've been destroyed and he's saying so god has rejected them too so he's saying there's two different kinds of sons of abraham there's children of a promise and children of the flesh and children of the promise they're the heirs of the covenant to whom god has always been faithful god is not breaking his promise that's what he's saying so he's saying God called these people and it wasn't because they're special or good. So hold on to that thought and we will go to verse 14. So what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Okay, so is God unfair? Is what St. Paul's asking? Because he chose somebody and he didn't choose somebody else. Does that make God unfair? Absolutely not. Okay, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, um, and I will have compassion 
on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not upon man's will or exertion, but upon God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, so that he has mercy on whoever he wants. Um, and uh, hardens the heart of whoever he wills. Sorry, there's so many tech difficulties today. Um, so this is actually a passage, I think, that people um, really, 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 really struggle with. Um, because they want everything to be hunky-dory and easy. And I, and I really, um, I think that this, these two chapters can be a big struggle for a lot of people. Um, because, and I'm going to get into it a little bit more later, but about how we view God, not how God views us. So God is free. St. Paul is asserting here, God can do whatever he wants. He's saying, you don't really have the right to choose who God has mercy on or who God doesn't have, have mercy on, right? So you can't be mad that God saved the Gentiles, Right, and he's gonna, and he starts going through different um, examples. I'm not switching the Old Testament for this one yet, where he's talking about Moses, or the example of Pharaoh, right? Um, but Saint Paul's point here, because I'll say if you guys have issues with that part for the Q and A part at the end, if you want it. But Paul's point is that the covenant was and always will be because of how good God is, not how good the receiver is okay that's that's saint paul's point so god's mercy is unexpected and undeserved and it glorifies people and he's also saying you whom you humans have no right to challenge him because it's his grace why what is why why does why is that not following because if you understand what grace is grace means gifts so he's saying you don't get to tell the rich guy how dare you give your money to that charity is what St. Paul is saying. He's saying you have no right to say that. It's not your money. Just because he's rich and good, he can give it to whoever he wants, but you don't get to say, actually, I don't think that's where you should put your money, God. That's, that's what St. Paul is saying about grace. So you don't get to say, why do you give gifts to such and such a person? That's his prerogative. Um, and on a spiritual level, I think that a lot of us could take that to heart when we are um, thinking about people in real life of saying, how come he got the job when I'm unemployed? How come he got the miracle when I could have used a miracle? How come he got this or she got this of saying, God's giving, handing out his money to everybody. God's handing out his grace to everybody. You don't get to be mad that he gives things to people right? And you don't get to assess for him who he should give it to and whom he shouldn't give it to, right? Um, I think the verse sharing is fixed now. I hope it's fixed now. Um, verse 19. Um, you will say to me, why does he find fault or who can resist his will? So if he didn't give the money, how are you blaming this person? Okay. Um, for who can reach his will? But who are you, a man, to answer back to God about this? 
I really love St. Paul. He's really just, he's really letting us all have right now. He's like, who do you think you are? Is what St. Paul's asking. And our generation in particular, I think we need that challenge a lot because we really think we're all, we're, we're, we're all that in a bag of chips. Um, will what is molded say to its molder, why did you make me like this? Does the potter have no right over the clay? Can't a potter make one vessel intentionally beautiful and intentionally make one another that's not? Keep in mind, he's, he's not saying this is what God does to humans. He's saying, can't a potter do that if he wants? Okay. Um, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction? He's saying, what if a potter wants to show you how weak a certain material is? So he makes something weak on purpose to shatter in front of you, to show you as a demonstration, as an example. Right? He's saying, can't a potter do that? Um, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called but not also from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. Okay, now here is where he's saying, because God has been preparing this from, from the very beginning, and he's going to start quoting um, Hosea now, okay? Where he said, those who are not my people, um, oh, I put it in the wrong spot to share. So hopefully this works this time. Um, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence upon the earth with rigor and dispatch. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us children, we would have fared like Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. So I will, um, if it's working, if anyone on here knows if it's uh, working yet, um, I'm just going to um, reshare some of those to Katana so that you can go read them if you wish. Because he's just put through um, a bunch of them in a row um, to make his point. I'm going to just put a few. I'm not going to put them all because I don't want to waste too much time on, on the, the tech part. So, Vessel of Destruction. Okay. Um, I'm going to just briefly summarize what Origen says about this because he's my favorite. Um, so Origen's saying in this passage, we're seeing the apostle aroused against those who ask insolent questions like us. Um, and in his response, he's confounding the arrogance of the questioner. So who are you managed to apply against God? So he gives a whole bunch of points. One, two of them that we'll go through. He's saying, this means that man before God, just as you can see how some of the fathers looked at this, is like clay before a potter. And just as a worthless slave whose master decides that some job is full of reason and use ought to be done, but the servant being unwilling to do the work goes and asks the, man, the master saying, why did you order this to be done? So Origen is trying to make it clear, guys, keep in mind, he's not talking about how what God does to human beings. He's saying 
he's using an analogy to say, you don't have the right to ask these questions um, with that spirit, right? So it's like you have a job description at work. That's why he says it's like a servant, or just things like a servant. The servant has a job description. And that because the servant doesn't want to do something, right, that the servant is coming in and saying, why would you even do it like that? Right? Or this is so dumb. Or why are you asking me to do it? And he's saying, that's not your place. That's not your place. Okay? But Origen says, I don't think that a faithful and wise servant who asks this from a will to understand and wanting to see God's wisdom, that God would say to him, who do you think you are? Right? He's saying that this is a rhetorical, this, this kind of, of response to humans um, is a response based on the attitude. And he's saying that, um, and, he, and, and origin, I'm not going to go through all of them, goes to a bunch of biblical examples to say, in fact, many people who have asked with the right spirit, even in scripture, God has answered and has said, come, let me show you. Right? So the point here is not about not being allowed to question God, but it's saying, if you're going to question God, I think this is a really good lesson for us to take from Paul. If you're going to question um, God, what is the spirit with which you're questioning? Okay, is it because you think you have the right? Do you think you're entitled? Because you don't. God doesn't owe you an answer. Okay, God doesn't owe you an explanation for his mercy or, his, or for his will. So don't, um, don't treat him like that. That's, that's what... Um, St. Paul um, is saying. So, um, the same pattern as seen in the Old Testament and spoken of in the Old Testament is happening, is, what, is where St. Paul is going with his overall argument right now. He's saying that God chose a particular people, Abraham, Jacob, etc., and that even now, he's choosing Gentiles. Just like he always did, he's making nobodies become somebodies. Okay, and that he's saying, this isn't new, guys. This is how he always worked. Um, Isaiah had said that only a remnant would be saved. So he's, he's now using um, scripture to make his point, right? He's saying, what I'm saying to you is rooted in scriptures, right? So um, he's saying that in Isaiah, so let me, let me share that one. So, um, as it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped to the house of Jacob shall no more again lean upon him that struck him. And there's the, the section goes on. What is he saying there? He's saying that Isaiah already spoke about that there was going to be a group of people that are a remnant that are going to believe on the Lord, that will remain faithful to the Lord. So Paul is saying those are those descendants of Abraham of the promise who have believed in Christ. Okay, so he's saying, I'm proved to you from scripture that I'm not crazy. I'm not making up stuff, right? It's like, if you're a Sunday school teacher and you were to go in and say, oh, here's what I think God thinks of such and such topic. You as a Sunday school student or youth group member or whoever can, can say, based on what? Like, based on what do you say that you think God thinks this? Just because you think so? Right? So that's what I'm saying. St. Paul's using scripture to say, no, it's not just because I think so. This is the proof. I'm not just saying it. 
everything that I'm telling you comes straight from God himself through what he revealed. Um, and he's wrestling, right? Keep in mind, like St. Paul is wrestling himself with um, how to make sense of history, right? How is it that they were a people and no longer people? And he returns back to the promise. The grace that was given wasn't because of the law, but by faithfulness, by commitment to the covenant itself. That's Paul's point, right? What made them the people of God was not their genetics. It was the covenant. It was their faithfulness to the covenant. So let's step back for a second and understand. So he's saying that salvation was always meant to be open for all. That was the, always the intention. However, when the people rejected him, God made himself available to a particular people to make a point. But it's not because the people were good. So if you want to tie in this vessel of destruction thing, right? St. Paul was saying that there's this overall plan. So a potter wants to show something. So he's saying, I'm making vessels of destruction. I'm making vessels of good ones because I want to show people what a good vessel looks like. So I did this and I did this. It was part of my plan all along. St. Paul is saying, yes. Part of God's plan all along was the Jews and the Gentiles, always. And that God was working through history all along, always planning for this. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't something that happened by fluke on the side. This was always the plan. Um, and that the promise, this grace, was never because of the law. It was never because of the law. God wasn't being good because of the law. The law was good for people. I'm not going to rehash that. That's what we talked about at, for a long time, right, in those first few chapters of Romans. And so God always throughout history chose people who didn't deserve it, people who are not obvious. Abraham, Isaac. Jacob, King Saul, King David, Gideon, the 12 apostles, St. Mary, people that people were not expecting. Okay, so he's saying this is all in line with it and that God has continued this pattern and that's how Gentiles um, are now covenant members. And precisely in these gifts to which God has bound himself, God retains his freedom. Okay, God always is a free agent. This is so important in your spiritual life. Do not deal with God with entitlement. God does not owe you something. Don't try and override God's sovereignty. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm particularly hashing on this point because I think we even go sometimes a little bit further than we might, where we sometimes revel in being able to like, right? To, to be like um, pampered. And I'm not saying that God never pampered, but I'm saying that make sure that your mentality isn't wrong, right? Make sure that um, just because God is nice, that you don't feel entitled that you're not demeaning or abusing God. I am not talking about how God views you. I am talking about how you view God when you interact with him. That makes sure you don't forget who he is. So in the second part, he goes through um, um, further to prove what's going on. So 
um, verse. Thirty. What shall we say? Okay. So he's saying. So what? What do you make of the situation? Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness—they're a thing now. By belief in Christ. And Israel, who had the law, they're not a thing right now. And he says, "Why?" asks, "Why?" Because they didn't pursue it through faith, but as if, but as if it were based on works okay so again what is he what is he trying to say here the gentiles who weren't even looking for righteousness they couldn't care less about the real god at one point they're now righteous they're now made right with god they're now being reconciled to god because of their faith and their faithfulness their response to the lord jesus israel however they thought they could be good with god by means of the law they thought they could maintain their position just by being faithful to the law, but they failed. And it's not because the law was bad, but because they weren't pursuing it through faith, but as though by merit. So they missed the boat. They failed to identify the very Messiah they were promised, right? That they were promised a Messiah and they failed um, to recognize him. Um, and he is now quoting Isaiah. I just shared it to the stream. Please, please do let me know if it is working. Um, as it is written, behold, I'm laying a Zion, a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall. And he who believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm trying to find where to get my stuff back. Okay. So he's saying, the scriptures told you, um, apparently it's none of it's working now. Okay. Okay. It is working now. Sorry. Please don't hate me guys. Don't worry. Next week, God willing, all of this will be smooth and I won't be as annoying as I am right now. I know I'm already boring as it is and these things make it worse, but Paul is making the argument. He wants to say to them, the Lord told you so, okay? So that nobody accuses Paul of saying, that's you, Paul. And so he's saying, no, here's scripture. Here's Isaiah telling you, I am laying a stumbling block. And so please don't misunderstand the verse, I'm laying a stumbling block. He's saying, I'm laying a foundation stone. And it so happens that this foundation stone is a stumbling block. What does that mean? A stumbling block is literally a rock I trip over. It became an offense to me, it became the thing that I, that I tripped over, right? And so Isaiah already said that, and, and, and Paul is trying to tie all of this together now and say, all of history pointed at the fulfillment of the law. All of scripture pointed at the fulfillment of the law. All of the prophets pointed at a fulfillment of the law in a person, and it's Christ. That's the good news that Paul's trying to bring, right? So he's saying, here's his prophecy. Isaiah said it. And he goes, and you know who it was? You know who it was? It was Jesus. This stumbling stone was the Lord Christ. This is what the Jews are like. This can't be it. This can't be the fulfillment of the law, especially because of the crucifixion. 
especially because of crucifixion, right? This is a stumbling block. It's the Lord. The scandal of the cross was too much for those looking at him. They couldn't accept him. So he's bringing everything together, everything together. And he's saying, it's not the temple. That's not the holy place, you Jews. That's what you think it is. No, it's not. It is God himself. And it's this that you didn't recognize that made Jesus a stumbling block to you. And that's why now he's going to turn to his great sadness, right? That these card-holding members, the analogy we used in chapter 1 and 2, that these card members are so obsessed with the card that they don't even recognize the one who gave them the card anymore. That they, they're so obsessed with the membership plan and program and perks that they've totally missed the boat. They've, they've totally lost out. Um, again, are you as upset as St. Paul is? So um, we will zoom through um, chapter 10, because it's, it's, it doesn't require, don't worry, a lot of, of explanation. Um, do, do, do. Share to stream. I hope that works. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I'm going to pause there. I promised I would zoom through it, but I will overall zoom through it. But is that your desire? Is your real desire, is your burning heart's desire that everybody be saved. Because if it's not, and I know mine's not always, usually is not, we're not servants. Okay? Because that's not Christianity. That's not what it means to be a child of God. We should be burning desire. I was listening to an atheist once on CBC radio, um, and he said something that was very striking to me. Um, he didn't say it to me. It was striking to me personally. Um, but he was saying how moved he was by a very fanatical Protestant who told him that he wanted him to convert in case he goes to hell. And the reason I'm saying that is because I think traditional Orthodox and, and Catholics were often very quick to be critical of that method of preaching. But this atheist was saying, you know, this guy who's speaking to me really believes in that. He really believes that I might go to hell. So for him to go out of his way to be very aggressive with me because he didn't want me to go to hell was a sign to me that he deeply cared about me in some weird way. That's amazing. Right? Like, that's not how most of us look at it. Right? But it's, it's a question of, do you believe that this is for real? Right? Um, okay, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Saying, no, I know that they're religious. I know they mean what they're doing. He's not hating on them. They're just not enlightened. They don't have the full truth. For being ignorant of righteousness that comes from God, um, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. For Christ, as we just said a minute ago, is the end of the law. That everyone who has faith may be justified. This part is really important. Okay, A major distinction is being made between the law 
and its telos, its, its end, its goal, its direction. The direction or the goal of the law is Christ. Why am I saying that's so important? The law is about becoming a specific person, not about deeds themselves. To go back to the analogies we used before, that's the difference between the guidelines and the regulations with health and health itself. That's the difference. It's that guidelines are not bad things. That's why St. Paul's like, I'm not hating on the law, but they point at health. Health is what we're striving for, not guidelines. Our aim is not to come up with more guidelines. Our aim is that everyone be healthy. That's the difference. Okay, that's what St. Paul is trying to say. This is why the Jews missed the boat. They got excited about guidelines, right? And I think that's where a lot of us in the church today, we miss the boat, right? When people come and ask questions about spirituality, right? Of like, how do I pray more? How do I fast longer? How do I do more matanyas? How do I do more liturgies? And it's like, what is your objective of those things? Those are not bad things. But the goal is holiness. The goal is Christ himself, to put on Christ, to be Christ, to be in communion with the Trinity. That's the goal. And so, so many of us struggle in our spiritual lives because we don't make that connection. Romans 12 it's beautiful. It's going to talk a lot about what does it look like. All of this, that sounds like theory right now. I know it's, it's heavy, but Romans 12 becomes, what does it look like? What does a Christian look like? Okay, so we'll get there. But the person who is faithful to Christ, which means to be Christ, is justified. He's made right with God. What do you need to enter the covenant? To believe. What does that mean to just believe? That's what he'll say right now. So verse 5. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by it. But the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven to bring Christ down or who will descend to this to bring Christ from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you. I'm going to just quickly say what he means because people stumble over this because it's, it's, he's, Paul's a little bit wordy sometimes. Um, He's just trying to say very simply, just not as simple to us today, that the proximity of salvation, the nearness of salvation to us um, is through Christ. It's very close, right? So he's saying, guys, you don't need to like send someone to heaven to bring Christ down for you, okay? You don't need someone to descend into the abyss to bring it to you. God came to you himself. God is near. God is accessible. That's what he's saying. Um, verse and nine. Because if you confess, this is the verse that's often very abused. Okay. Four, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For, just as the verse in Deuteronomy says, a man, for man believes with his heart and so is justified, and he confesses with his lips and so is saved. The scripture says no one who believes in him will be put to shame. So I'm sharing to you that St. Paul 
is quoting scripture when he says that. Because today some Christians use this as, if I just say these magical words, I am somehow now saved. I believe you, Jesus. That is not what St. Paul is saving, even though we do need that. Okay, even though we do need to believe, right? So we're not, dis we're not disagreeing that you need to confess that Jesus is Lord, but just saying that your confession that Jesus is Lord isn't enough. Because if, if that were enough, the whole book of Romans that we've read so far become pointless because Paul at no point in this, in this has been saying, you can do whatever you want. He said the opposite, this whole epistle. He said that the works of everybody, Romans, Jews, Gentiles, everybody sucked. And so they were all unfaithful and they all lost God. So he is not saying that. Right. Um, in fact, he's actually simply quoting scripture uh, from Deuteronomy saying that those who believe, those who are faithful, those who enter the covenant from God are not going to be put to shame. It's saying if you put your trust in God, don't worry, your trust is not misplaced. Jesus will come through. That's what he's saying. Um, and he's even continuing to use the language of Deuteronomy when in these two verses because the verses in Deuteronomy talk about mouth and heart and profession and faith. And that's why he goes ahead to link those in his epistle. So saying man believes with his heart, confesses with his lips, um, tying it directly to Deuteronomy. This would have spoken directly to the heart of the Jew. Paul, St. Paul is a biblical fiend. Okay. He is a beast. Um, like he knows his stuff. It's crazy. Um, and, and what's more amazing to me is that he's seeing these individual moments in scripture so clearly, right? He's like, this is what is being spoken about and he is tying it to us. Okay. Um, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Kyrios, the same Lord, okay? Kyrios is a big deal here because it's, this, it's the name of God, the Yahuwah, the I Ams that we talk about, but in Greek. So he, it's not lost on the reader. He's saying for it's the same God. He's not just saying Lord, he's saying God, okay? The same, the same Kyrios, the same Lord um, of all and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, and here... He is quoting Joel, which I just shared to you. Um, I think I'm going to stop sending the old stuff Testament back to you guys because it's going to, I just don't want to get it over and over and, and drive me nuts. So um, he brings it back to Joel. I'm just trying to find where I am in my notes now. Um, that the passport to salvation right now is for all, whether Jew or Gentile through Christ, because that is um, the, 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 the direction of the law. And like I said, he's making all of his claims. He's, he's backing them up with proof um, through the use of scripture, which I won't go through. So how are men to call upon him and whom they have not believed? Okay, if you don't believe in someone, how do you call upon their name, right? If I've never heard of St. Mary, I'm never going to be like, oh, St. Mary, help me. I have to know about them to, to call, okay? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? Unless they are apostolos, okay? Apostles. 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what, ha what ha he has heard from us? So faith comes from what is heard, and what, what is heard comes by the preaching of Jesus, of Christ, sorry. Paul is saying that the gospel, this is very important for what, what we'll end the meditation with in a, in, in a few verses, the gospel comes through human agents, through human agents. We are the feet of the gospels. He's commenting rhetorically that we need messengers and evangelists. And he's saying in his own time, the word has gone out. And now it's a question of whether or not people will hear and obey. And that's why when he moves on to this next part, to verse 18, okay, um, but I ask, he's talking about the Jews that he's lamenting over. Have they not heard? Do they not hear? Yes, they have, he says. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Again, he's, he's quoting the Old Testament. This is why in the doxology of the apostles, um, we say your voice or your sound has reached the end of the, of the world and your word to the earth and the, your words to the end of the world. This is why we're saying that, right? It's coming from here. Um, let me ask again. This is the diatribe. Did, did Israel not understand? He's like, maybe they heard, but they didn't get it. And so he's quoting scripture again and says of, of Moses, the, what we read earlier from Deuteronomy 30, um, that was already shared a little bit above. Um, let me share that one again, because that one's, that one's really, really, really key. Um, that I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then he quotes Isaiah um, yet again, right? From Isaiah 65 here, um, which I didn't link. And I don't have it handy. I'm, I'm my bad. It's Isaiah 65, verse 1 to 2. Um, that's what he's, what he's quoting here. When he says, Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, the Gentiles, us. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay, so St. Paul is calling out loud and saying, you know, Israel, did they not hear, understand? And he answers himself, they heard. And he's like, I don't think they can claim not understanding. Scripture is clear over and over and over and over again. And so he's saying, that's why, that's why I lament. Okay, he's saying, this is why I'm upset. What do I say about my brother who's, who's willfully lost? Right? And now you can understand the mentality that some Jews at the time have when they start calling the Jews things like morons and stuff like that. I'm not saying we can go and do that, but that's the spirit where they're saying that. It's somebody so mad at his brother being like, are you, like, are you a moron? This is so easy. What is wrong with you? You can lose your debt in a moment. Just go ask Baba. Right? Like it's, 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 it's that frustration of saying, I, I, I can't watch you like this. What can I do? I should, should I pull up my hair? Like, what do I do? to reason with you, 
because you get it. It's right here. It's in front of you. This is, this is the frustration that's coming from him out of love. Okay. But he's also weaving it into the narrative of history saying God always planned for the Gentile. Okay. There was never a time where God was not calling for the Gentile. So this is like when you have a rebellious child. Okay. So St. Paul, what he's trying to say here, when he's saying that God planned this from the beginning of history. Okay. Is he's saying God did in trying to win his lover, the Jews, not the Gentiles, the Jews, because they're special. He's saying that in his doing that, he starts courting the Gentiles and spurs them to jealousy. This is part of his romance, right? And so he, it's almost like when you have a rebellious child and you want to make a point to the rebellious child who's not listening with what you say to the kid that's behaving properly, right? So imagine you have two kids and one of them was like, give me this now. And you're like, nope. But then the other kid is like, mama, please, can I have a chocolate? Right? And then mama says, oh, wow, of course you can. Look how easy it is to get what you want when you ask respectfully. Right? So he's saying that God is doing this to older brother Israel by what he's saying to younger brother Gentile. Right? By saying, when I say to the Gentile, because he loves the Gentiles, it's not like he fake loves them. Right? But he's saying, I'm speaking to the Gentiles and hopefully you get jealous and say, wait a minute, I thought you only like me. He's like, no, I always liked all of you but I did have a special relationship with you as to wrap it all up, a child of the promise, not because of your genetics, because all of these are my children, right? So spurring them to salvation is part of the economy that God has with the Jews. We as younger brothers should be an example to the Jews. That's what St. Paul is saying. St. Paul is saying God was using the Gentiles for the Jews. And I wonder how many of us ever think about how we affect the Jews today, because we should. We should think about how the Jews perceive us. I never thought about that before this chapter, this time reading it and studying it. I've never thought about my role as a Christian that I have as a member of this community of, of that we should be part of the reason why our older brother should want Christ. That's huge, right? That's a responsibility for us. And spiritually, I just really want us to push on this point. I'm, 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 I'm um, done. There's going to be like two lines after this, but I just really really want to say like i don't think we take preaching seriously i really don't um and i grew up um with the like notion that we should never talk much about faith right and i'd even say that in sunday school when i was a sunday school teacher like of the whole like i think it would be better to do it by your works right? That when you stand out and people see you different, that's good. I don't think that's enough anymore. 
I think that's true. I definitely think that when we behave in the right way, we stand out. And I really think that it's not hard to stand out anymore by doing the right thing because doing the right thing is so weird. However, I'm just simply saying, I don't think a real Christian, and this is a challenge to myself as much as it is to you guys, can claim that his words don't need to reach the end of the world. And, and that, that includes audible word, not just by action. Because St. Paul asked, he's like, if they don't know how, like, how will they know? Someone has to go and say it. Christ didn't just preach by example, he spoke. Right? The disciples didn't say, we're going to convert the world and flip the world upside down by looking good and behaving and being nice to people. No, like, it requires an ability to speak. I'm not going to get into how do we go about doing that, because I think like different contexts, there's going to be different answers to that, and that everyone has um, a, a different gift. But I'm simply saying that no one should, with any kind of boldness or authority, say that people should not preach. Whether someone thinks it's their personal vocation or not to preach, that's something they shouldn't discuss, in my view, in a public forum as much as it should be with their spiritual guide about what is the way that I can preach, right? What are the places where I can, rather than all of us taking a stance of no. Because even among the Orthodox, I've seen like the, the, the common tune is the whole only actions, but I've also seen the common tune of, and I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be really blunt, forgive me, right? Where they'll almost, you can sense this anti-Protestant slant sometimes where it'll have this attitude of, we're not all about the showiness. And so instead we say to people, come and see, right? Um, I know in California, we did that, like if some of my friends, that was our, that was our line. And, and it's, it's a good line, okay? It's not a bad line, right? Come and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Those aren't wrong. So I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that that's wrong. What I'm saying is we cannot, if we're reading the same gospel, we can't say that preaching excludes words, right? If, if, if Christians are invisible, because I'm, I'm, I'm comparing, because I think part of this, um, I'm sorry that I'm rambling out loud, but I think part of this mentality comes from that my generation at the very least, and those before me, you, uh, I mean, there's a very, various ages on here. Those who are younger than me by about a decade and more, okay, um, like 90s and on, um, your adult life um, is in a post-Christian world. And I think that a lot of us that have the mentality of actions only are coming from a place that was, a, was actually a Christian world and where, yeah, speaking about it was a little bit out of place and even offensive at some points. But now I look at it and I say, well, we've lost the, the, the forum. We've lost the marketplace. There used to be a place where humans could talk and dialogue. In general, not just Christians, everybody could. And it was a thing. And Paul actually, St. Paul used that to his advantage. Paul went to the forum. The forum is a real place. The reason why they're called forums online is they're mimicking the real Roman forum. Right? There, there was a physical place you went to and you talked and you discussed ideas and you could dialogue, you could debate, you could fight, you could 
monologue, you could diatribe, you could do whatever you wanted. And people would listen to different ideas. And actually that continued in the West. I don't know if you guys know this, I don't need to play trivia, but that's where soapbox came from of you can stand on your soapbox and preach, but because they would literally take a box and stand on it and speak. There'd be an elevated place to speak from, right? And so when there was a place in society for all of us to discuss, which was great, then there was a place for that. But I feel like that's been lost. Um, I could be wrong, but I, I don't see, I'm not aware of any of it. I mean, if, if it's Facebook, then God have mercy on us all. Um, but there is, there is, does not seem to be a public forum anymore. And so the voice of religion is actively silent. I don't want to get into my own agenda about that, but simply to say that do not ever take lightly your martyria, your witness, okay? Because everything you do is a testimony. Everything you say is a testimony and you must be prepared to give an answer for what you believe. And as St. Paul said, if people don't know, how will they believe? What can that look like? If you're fasting, like when I was a pharmacist, okay, before I found out that I'm not allowed to eat chocolate, um, which really, really sucks because um, of my disease, um, I was eating chocolate all the time. So when, if I was going to suddenly not have chocolate on Wednesday and Friday, right, am I going to be like, oh, no, I'm just not in the mood <laughs> every Friday and Wednesday I just don't like chocolate. Like, no, like there's nothing wrong with saying, and this is what I did. I just like, guys, Wednesdays and Fridays, I am, I'm vegan. So um, I can't have chocolate. So when you're offering me chocolate on those days, that's why I'm saying no. Actually, it's going to be like two thirds of the year because we're always fasting. Um, and so that would create a dialogue. Like, oh, wow, the church wants to control you. It became a point of preaching, being like, no, not at all. It's actually about being able to have discipline and being able to say no to myself. Chocolate's not evil. If the church thought chocolate was evil, I'd never be allowed chocolate. But I'm able to say that, no, I'm not, right? Don't you guys do intermittent fasting? Why, right? So there's an objective to it. So that suddenly there became, like, Here's what it means, right? So, I mean, that's an example, but don't take lightly your duty as a Christian, okay? To witness, to martyria, to preach, and your life is a preaching, all of it. All of your senses are preaching. I'm simply saying, including speech. Don't rule out speech as a form of witness. Because I think we, even as Christians, have subscribed to that. So that's how this ends. And so St. Paul's asking the question, that's what it's going to lead into the next time, is that he's saying that the culmination of all this is the Lord Christ, whom the Jews see as a stumbling block. But has God rejected our older brother? Absolutely not. Okay, that's chapter 11 um, that we'll do next week. I'm not going to combine 11 and 12 because 12 is a gold mine. If all of this has been very theological so far for you guys, um, fear not after chapter 11. Um, chapter 11 has some theology still, um, but 11 will not be long. It's, it's not a hard chapter. Um, but 12 to the end is exhortation and it's a gold mine. Um, Romans 12 is one of my favorite chapters in the, in the whole New Testament. Um, it's, it's, it's really beautiful. Um, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, any, um, I'll start looking at some of the questions. I know that the Katana schedule um, 
was supposed to be 9.30. So if they need to turn it off on that and go for it, um, and I can continue if people want to go past that with questions on here. Anybody who wishes to go, please do not be, I'm not going to be offended at, at all. Um, and I can take some time to answer any of the questions you guys um, had on these. I'm going to, I'm going to take them on um, uh, predominantly on the Zoom side of things. I don't know if there's any on Katana. If there is, if someone can copy and paste them into here would be great. Um, so I'm just going to scroll up to try and find them. Why did the covenant not reach the Gentiles in the Old Testament then if it was always part of God's plan? Um, great question. It wasn't that um, God wasn't trying to reach them. Remember in the history, in the narrative that we've, that we've looked at so far, is actually that God um, started with everybody, including um, the Gentiles, right? Before Abraham, God was working with the whole world. Right? Noah wasn't a particular people. He didn't come from a particular tribe. Right? God rebooted the world then. And then he was like, okay, Noah, let's renew this deal, me and you, and we're recreating the whole world, literally. Right? Um, and then um, they still rejected him. So the election of Israel was not a rejection of non-Israel. It was God saying, is there anyone who will work with me? And so they're the bringing back the Gentiles was about restoring Gentiles. It wasn't about that they were always rejects and God suddenly brought them in. It was saying they symbolized the rest of the world that chose not to be in covenant with God, that God chose them, is what St. Paul is saying. I hope that clarifies. Um, good question. Um, from one of my servants growing up, not like that taught me. Um, pre uh, preaching is a gift and a calling. Um, all Christians are called to witness. Yes, I agree. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say, and you know exactly what I'm talking about because you taught me at my church, um, is just that I do think that we have to take seriously the verbal component too. I think we just gotta be very careful in our emphasis of actions that we're not doing it um, at the expense of words, as though denigrating words, or as though that preaching by mouth is wrong. Um, and so I think that we're just very quick to look at Protestants and say that's so offensive. And I, I mean, really, there's some, kind, I'm not even going to lump it as Protestants. I've seen preaching that I find offensive, right? Like I've seen people screaming at people on the streets. And just like St. Paul took into account when he preached, um, one time I was in Seattle, and it was actually in Seattle, it really... Um, it really hit me how messed up we Christians are as a whole. Um, because there was a guy screaming at everybody that they're going to hell, that they were filthy, that they were disgusting. I was like, okay, whatever. But then he saw me as a priest, and then he started screaming at me about how deceived I was as a Christian. And I was like, man, we can't even like each other when we're screaming at each other. So, um, I, I'm not, I'm not, um, not uh, recognizing that there can be a wrong use of speech. But you're saying that we've got to be careful that when we criticize a wrong way of speech or a wrong way of culture, that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? That we, that we also recognize that now more than ever, there's a need. So like, look at Canada, for example, Jordan Peterson. I'm not giving a stance on what I think of him as a personality, but he has positively affected a lot of people by being a Christian 
who knows why he has his stances, regardless of what his stances are, and being able to articulate them well, right? He's, he's holding his own. That's been a big impact on a lot of people who didn't know that um, Christians could know their stuff, that they're not just emotional, right? And we're all, all Christians are benefiting from what Jordan Peterson is doing, regardless of what denomination he belongs to, how right or wrong he is. I barely watched the guy, I've only seen like two videos. I'm not trying to do a plug for, for JP, just saying that there's something to that, right? When Pope Francis says something, regardless of whether it's right or wrong, positive or negative, there's an impact, right? So I'm just saying that when people use their, their mouth in the proper way, it also has um, an impact. Um, in Psalm 139, what does it mean to say I've hated them with perfect hatred? Um, I would need to look that up because I don't know the context of this psalm yet before, before answering that. Um, if it's David saying that, um, again, hatred, just in general, I would have to look it up. Um, maybe I'm going to be doing a Q&A. Um, I miss you, by the way, and it was nice to see you on camera earlier. But um, I might be doing a Q&A later this week, so I can look it up for you then. God willing, just remind me. Um, I know you sent me a message earlier, so send me another one. But just as, a, as an, a general, hatred means to not choose. It means to reject. Okay? Um, and so that, um, for King David, for example, is saying that I have rejected perfectly what I am supposed to reject. I did not mix good and evil right? I did not do the things that are wrong. I have hated properly. I have rejected properly. And it, which means also I have chosen right. I have not mixed the two. So usually that's what King David is talking about. Um, so I can't, um, what's it called? Um, I can't get into the specifics of Psalm 139 because I don't, I don't know it um, well enough. I'm sorry. Um, can we say that preaching should only be in the context of a relationship? Otherwise, isn't it just noise like all this information out in the world? No, I don't think I could say that. I could say that it's more powerful and effective in the context of relationship. But I can't say that it should only be in the context of relationship. Actually, theoretically, I could make the argument that you are always in relationship with the whole world. So I could say you're right if you mean it in that context, because every human being is your brother or sister, father or mother, without exception, baptized or not baptized. But I'm assuming that what you mean here is a special relationship, but we are all in relationship. And so, no, I, that's, why I'm just, that, that's why I spent so much time on the preaching part. That's to me the big part of 910, right? Is that... Um, I think we're afraid to put the Bible verse in the sandwich bag, right? When you're handing out the food to the homeless, right? I've seen, I've seen this debate. I've had this myself as a big question mark myself when I was in LA, whether to put the Bible verse. And I'll be the first one to put myself in line where I said, no, don't. I didn't. 
I didn't because I'm just like, no, that's not my point. But then now I ask myself, but isn't it my point? Isn't it that my love for God is the reason why I love my neighbor? So my note isn't saying, accept the Lord or no more sandwiches. It's saying, I discovered in the Lord that you're my family. And I love you, brother, sister, mother, father. It really is about what you mean um, and what your tone is. Um, and so that's, that's, that's what makes a difference, right? Where, for example, um, as a pharmacist, just because I can only go back to my own personal experience, um, sometimes, depending on the tone of the conversation, I didn't feel uncomfortable to say, when the people would be like, yeah, I'm just sick, what you gonna do? I've exhausted all my options. Um, it wasn't scary for me sometimes to be like, well, make sure like, if you believe, you ask the guy upstairs too as one of your options. Right, like I don't have to be like, oh my gosh, no, he said religion, right? Um, and that affects my care, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that can be its whole, topic is discussion on mission and preaching and how to preach and when to speak and when not to but i'm just simply saying i wouldn't be able to say only in a particular relationship um it could be dismissed as noise but that's not my objective my objective is not to be um because the second part of the question was isn't it just noise if otherwise and i'm saying no not not necessarily but even if it is no problem because my objective is not to assess noise my objective is to speak truth at all times, to be truth at all times with whatever that means. How people react to me is exactly what St. Paul said about the Jews. He's saying the voice has gone out into the, all the ends of the world. You accept or you don't, that's up to you. If you want to reject it as noise, that's up to you. That's, but it's not my job to worry about that. That's the receiver's job. Um, uh, you mentioned the potter sometimes makes breaks the pot to teach a lesson. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so what St. Paul is saying, so St. Paul is not saying, I made some humans to destroy, right? Just because I think that's how some people misread it. He's just using it as an analogy. He's saying, couldn't a potter, if he wanted, make something weak to make a point, right? Um, so for example, um, I, I, I'm not really an engineer, much to FMI's chagrin. Um, but let's say you wanted to make a point of why, do you want to do a demonstration of why this alloy is strong and this one is not? You might, to, to teach somebody, bring in both to the lab and show, make a demonstration. You made something that's going to break just to show that it breaks. Right? So he's saying that the person who's in charge can do whatever he wants. That's his point, right? And so the whole point of that section was to say, sorry, you should consider yourself. He's not, that's why I said, we're not talking about how God views you, but how you view God. So his point was saying, God as author of life can do whatever he wants with life. It is not your right to challenge him. That was all he was trying to, to say in that part. Um, really, I'm glad you brought that up again to, to bring it together. Um, uh, question part two about the, the, 
the preaching not in a relationship. What if the person doesn't like me or what I have to say prior to even starting to preach? Wouldn't it be more of a deterrent for that person? Again, this is more specifics of, of, of how is it done? So I can't answer that directly, but I would say here are the principles because I'm about principles. Am I trying to deny the truth to not offend someone? Am I trying to play down what I believe because I think it's not going to be received well? Am I taking on a character or a personality that's not actually authentically me just because I'm worried about how they're going to do it? Because if so, you're a slave. No offense. I don't mean you, the one asking the question. I mean anybody who falls into that, right? Even like I remember, um, I think I used this example in one of the Bible studies before, but I remember one girl um, when I was doing locum work for a bit, um, she's a technician and she was like, I would never, ever, ever marry my boyfriend that I live with. And she'd been with him for like two or three years. And I was like, wow, you're a jerk. I would never stay with you. And I just being myself. Right. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, why would I ever be in a relationship with somebody who's saying to me, I would never, ever marry you. You're saying no matter what I do, I am not worth committing to. And she's like, oh, I didn't think about it like that. That led to another thing to another thing. And at one point, I was just like, well, I don't know how to answer you without bringing in religion because I'm a religious person. So I have a worldview. So I do believe monogamy matters because I'm a Christian. I can't divorce that. It's not just a personal opinion. It's coming from a whole worldview, right? So it's about being real about what, what God is to you right and if you and as long as you are being authentic in who god really is and in your relationship to him i don't think you'll struggle too much with how to speak because you will be being you right like if a jew were to say to you because i think that a lot of the sensitivity just because people hate christians in general if a jew were to say to you like nah man i can't do that that's that's sabbath sorry no bro put that pizza away there's pork on it i can't have that I don't think many people would be worked up by that at all. I really don't, right? There's just a particular sensitivity, I think, when it comes to Christianity that we, um, we are partially to blame for, let's be honest, right? We historically have, have dug ourselves into a bit of a pit, all of us collectively, I get it. But I'm just saying that we don't now in response go and pretend like it doesn't matter. And I'm not saying that that's what you're saying. I'm saying let's, let's be real. Um, and even if it's a deterrent, I'd say as long as it's said objectively, there shouldn't be an issue, right? It's not that you're just saying, oh, I wish you would be more joyful because then you might know the Lord, right? Like, like, like no, right? Like, it's, it's about being real about who you are and why you're doing what you do. I struggle with the concept of preaching when in the context of a service, such as serving the homeless. At what point is overstepping a bound, forcing someone to sit through a sermon or proselytizing them before allowing them to have a meal. Right, so that's what I'm saying. I'm, I haven't gone into the specifics of how it could look. So on a personal level, I'm not gonna judge anyone who's doing it. On a personal level, I don't think I would feel very well about a sermon before it. Because I wouldn't want my work in the name of Christ to be perceived as um, needing to be merited, 
right, as a reward for their behavior or their response. To me, that's not what the preaching is, is about. What I'm saying with the verse as an example is saying, um, if, I'm, if I'm giving food in the name of Christ, then it's not a problem to me to use the name of Christ. But I have to ask the objective question of, am I giving them food so that they believe in Christ? That's wrong to me as an objective, personally. Because my objective in giving out the food is not to convert them because of the food. As St. Paul says, I say now personally, I wish that the whole world would be saved. I do. Okay? But I'm not going to have them believe because I'm giving them gifts. That's not, that's not it. Because that would defeat the point of Romans. Romans saying your sandwich doesn't make them right with God. Your law doesn't make them right with God. Jesus makes them right. Right? So I am not preaching to them with my sandwich as a, I'm going to hook you up if you if you do this, right? But that's why I'm saying I, I get the debate about it, but I, I don't, I think what would need to be analyzed is what am I doing and what does it mean, right? And then a recognition, as one person has said earlier, about the differences that we might have um, in our gifts, right? Um, I'll, I'll put him on blast, he's in here, Abuna Joe, right? Um, he's just natural, right? So Abuna Joe, since he was young, was on the streets of, um, Ottawa, and so the homeless know him by name since he was a teenager, okay? So when I go out, I don't have that rapport. I don't have that way. I don't know the culture. I don't know the way that people think. I don't know how I'm perceived. I don't know any of that. I just don't, right? So I, when I, when I went only once, because I'm not a really good Christian, um, I really just kind of wanted to see what everyone was doing, because I don't know versus I want to Joe where that's totally his open nature and character can talk to anybody there. Those even in California, it's like a Bunanastasi. Right? Like that dude can talk to like the random lady at Walmart and he can talk to the guy walking his dog. It's him. It's him. It's his personality. Right? So there's two things. Is my objective right? And then also, what's my personality? Am I using the gifts? Am I using in the right way? Am I ashamed, et cetera? Those are the two things that are always going to need to be in balance. And so your struggle, I think, is healthy. Um, and that we're just always going to be needing to navigate that. Right? And just to ask myself, if I felt uncomfortable, what was the reason for my discomfort? Was it because I'm not good at it? Or was it because I think that I'm doing something wrong? What was, what would, or, or many other questions. What is the reason for it? And if I can analyze that, I think I'll get to the crux of it more easily. Um, isn't it better for someone not to know God than to know him and not accept him? If so, shouldn't I be concerned that preaching to God to someone might convict them rather than save them? Absolutely not. No offense, I'm not being dramatic. Because this is what Christ said, actually. Christ, Christ said, I, I, I am that stumbling stone. And Christ actually said, he said two things that seem to be contradictory, but they're not. Because he says, I did not come to judge the world. But then he also says, those who have seen me are judged already. Because seeing and hearing, they have not believed. The truth is there. So I can't say, let's not preach truth so that it doesn't become condemnation. 
Because what would that mean about us? That would mean that we're the elite squad, right? That would actually make us neo-Gnostics, right? The Gnostics believe that they were the special group of people that had secret truth, right? So it would mean that we're saying that I'm going to hold on to this and everybody else can't say anything. Like, no, that Christ said that was his commandment to the disciples. It was not just a suggestion. He said, go, preach to the whole worlds starting in jerusalem then judea then samaria and then to the ends of the earth even so i send you right and so you and i i don't know if you know this um the book of acts is the only book in the new testament um of the that doesn't end with amen we are the book of acts the apostolic mission has not concluded. That's why, in a sense, the Synexarium that we read on Sunday really is a continuation of the book of Acts in, throughout history. Because we are the book of Acts. We are the apostles. That's why St. Paul said, we must all be apostolos. We are sent. We all must preach. Um, I, I understand your sentiment. I'm not attacking your sentiment. I'm just saying, um, no, we must. It behoves us as Christians um, to care for the salvation of all. If I don't care, something's wrong spiritually, right? It would be like a family member being happy and rejoicing that their parents and one of their siblings are estranged. Unfortunately, some of us like that, <laughs> um, but we shouldn't. If we are loving, we should not ever be okay um, with that. And I would add to it that how could I not want someone to know the truth how could I not my brother or sister come to know my father and love him? Right. I couldn't, I couldn't want that. I, that's, that's the last question I've received. Um, thank you guys for your um, patience. Um, I will also try and work out um, for next week. Um, all the, the tech stuff. I'm really, really sorry, especially to the SMSM crew. Um, I'm really, really sorry. Cause this, this is a service out of SMSM. Um, so I'm really sorry if any of you were, were impacted by it. Um, and I'll try and uh, have it resolved for next time. Again, worst case, I'll use my phone. Thank you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.